Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Leftology Podcast. Today, I am joined by my co-host, Patrick, and our guest, Socialism Done Left. Hello. How's everybody hey. doing today? Uh, doing good, man. So good so, so far? So let's get to the topic on hand. I want to hear from Socialism Done Left. How do you picture the world in a general sense? Like, what is your ideal system? Oh, sure. I mean... So I think that the, the general premise is like, what does market socialism look like? And so I think that um, I've said that I think socialism generally has three main aspects and it's workplace um, democracy, it's um, economic democracy, and it's um, like a very low inequality, the compression of the classes. And so the third one I think is the easiest to explain. It's that fundamentally you want to ensure that um, you compress people's incomes and wealth to such a degree that no person has incentives that are radically different from another person. So right now, um, the top you know one two percent of people um, get enough income from capital that their interests are very different than yours. They they want to maximize return on capital. You basically want to maximize your return on labor. Um, so the goal is to compress that basically via redistribution, taxes, welfare, stuff like that, by bringing the bottom up and the top down, so that everyone is a worker. Um, as Marx put it, the self-abolition of the working class, but via taxation. So um, nice nonviolent methods. Um, the second would be economic democracy, which basically means stuff like some degree of nationalization. Um, ideally, I would like those nationalizations to be democratic, um, hence the focus on economic democracy. Um, there's this, this uh, often a lot of nationalizations we saw in Europe and the United States were what is called a uh, hollow nationalization where the state owns it, but the, it, the it's only democratic via the representatives of the state. There's no direct election say to the people um, in charge of the firms and there's no worker cooperative structure inside of the firms. Um, so de facto, it's very hard to say that they are truly controlled by the people except in a very indirect way. I'd like to make that more direct. And then um, the third would be workplace democracy. So market socialists still want to maintain some market, um, so regulated market, but mostly of worker-owned firms, um, which uh, have 100% owning like shares in um, their own firm. So only they make the ultimate decisions in their own firm. Um, and they would decide things either via direct or indirect democracy, like representative democracy in large firms. Um, and they could sell dividend shares to raise funds to others, but there would be no controlling shares sold to others. That's the basic outline of the big strokes of what it would look like. So in short, a lot of redistribution, compress the glasses, um, nationalization with democratic aspects and uh, a market of co-ops. So like a dividend share is, is that like you put in money, like an initial investment out of the promise that you will get like a 20% back, but you have no stake in the actual company. Basically, yeah, it, this already exists in the current system. Like right now you can go out and buy stocks which don't give you any voting power and they just give you a return on investment and that's it. Uh, um, and that's important because you need a way for firms to raise money and it seems there's a reasonable amount of evidence that stock markets are like reasonably efficient. They're reasonably good at picking winners and losers. Um, so to some degree, it might be useful to let people use that as an investment tool. So interesting. So you're you're fond of keeping the stock market even moving forward? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't. Right now, the stock market is overwhelmingly owned by the top ten percent. I'm pretty sure the stat is that the top ten percent own like ninety percent of the stock market. It's like a it's a equity ownership is extremely unequal. So ideally, in the people's stock market, um, <laughs> it, that ownership would be immensely more broad, and a lot of it would be owned in stuff like social wealth funds. So if you look at something like Norway or the Alaska Permanent Fund, um, the state owns a lot of money, and in state owned or um, they contracted firms, they then put that money on the market. So stock ownership here doesn't mean like rich people owning things. It means like, I don't know, shared ownership, sort of indirect ownership. That's the best way I could put it. Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess my general question with, um, okay, so I started to bring this up before the podcast is I generally think 
uh, all automated industries and industries that are necessities should be communally owned by everyone. Mm -hmm. And then I've been trying to find a place where ideologically the free market fits in with co-ops. And I was wondering if there's a way without doing like wealth redistribution from like the government that we could ensure that small groups of people do not gain too much economic power through free market systems. Because I worry that free markets still have some of the uh, exploitative coercive factors that capitalism has. And I will caution, um, there, there are multiple types of market socialist. It's like a big range ideology. So I think when you say free market, you're thinking of something more towards the mutualist side. Mutualism is like a very, some would say non-socialist ideology of everything's worker cooperatives, but there's a fully functional free market with very little state regulation. Um, so it's worker ownership, but not the other two bits. And I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty close to the other side. I came from more of a, um, a planning side. The, the model I liked when I was more on the planning side is called Lange Learner. Um, which I can type out actually, because it's names, uh, Lange Learner, um, which is sort of like a planning model that involves markets for consumer goods so that the state can determine how much people desire various goods and then everything else is backwards planned from that. And so the, the reason why markets are useful in the Lange Learner model is the same reason they're useful in general. It's that um, competition and the like non-fixed price setting and having things be somewhat decentralized allows one competition um, which seems to produce some sort of benefits which we can talk about and two it's that it allows for the state to provide a price for something without having to like use social surveys or other complicated tools so basically you can figure out hey people want to pay ten dollars for a shoe without doing a survey and just asking people um, and also we know the surveys are unreliable for other reasons so in short um your overall question is like, where, how do we decide what should be planned and what shouldn't be? Um, the answer to me is fundamentally an empirical one. If the market is, we, we know that some industries are better done planned. Like there's a lot of evidence that um, either state ownership or some degree of um, state control is like very useful in education and healthcare and so on. And the reason seems to be that there are different structures in those economies. Like in healthcare, it's the, uh, what's called return to scale. A really big health insurance firm can for very similar costs insure 2 million as 300 million people. It's all the same administration, it's all electronic. Um, and that just isn't the case for some things like haircut shops. Um, you need an enormously larger administration to run 3 million haircut shops than one haircut shop. Uh, so. That's the basic theory there. I would say you, you extend markets to where they're more efficient and you extend planning to where they're more efficient. And I don't know where that line is exactly um, because it's empirical and it will change over time too, so. Uh, a lot of the recent discussion with, uh, uh, with whatever Vosh was saying last night, mm -hmm. uh, which is the fairly controversial some things, uh, but a main tenet of like seeking out socialism and communism is trying to get rid of exploitation as much as possible because like if you view taking of surplus value at all as exploitation i guess you have to have at least some of that for the firm to survive but at the point where it, you're living on a subsistence wage is where it gets a problematic and a little bit above that too uh so how in a market socialism or market socialist society do we make sure that people aren't being exploited to a mass degree so I think it, it hinges on the definition of exploitation. Um, so exploitation um, in the sense of like 
um, someone of obtaining surplus value that isn't given directly back to a worker is, um, and, and Marx pointed this out, uh, inevitable if you want to have like social welfare, right? So like to necessarily 50% um, of society doesn't work. Their children, they're elderly. You need to take some amount of every worker's hours and give it to those elderly, give it to those like um, poor, disabled and so on people um, for them to have a basic good. So we're not talking about that. Like presumably we're okay with social welfare. Um, yeah, yeah, we're good with that. <laughs> um, at least I am, I can't speak for Patrick. Only workers should eat. Everyone else should starve. The true no, Marxist position. Um, so the 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 way I've seen this phrase is that exploitation is when the worker is alienated from the product of their labor. So the idea is that you produce a lot of surplus value, and it doesn't go to a, a social goal you would like to see realized. It just goes to someone else's personal profit. And so I think that um, the two main critiques that people have raised are that the market pursuit of profit doesn't perfectly line up with social pursuit of what is useful. So one, in short, is that profit doesn't equal socially useful, um, or in economics terms, it would be that social marginal benefit doesn't equal private marginal benefit. Um, and two is that there's just something inherently wrong with the function of the market. And so I reject number two just on its face. I don't think that just having competition is exploitative. I don't think that having people compete with each other is exploitative. I don't think it alienates people. Um, a lot of the research I've seen on what makes people actually unhappy at work relates to them not being involved in management structures, which I think that worker cooperatives and other um, like unions and democratic structures in nationalized firms um, can solve. Um, the other one, which is that pro 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 like profit doesn't equal social marginal benefit, I think is very easy to understand. It's the reason that the market underproduces education or housing. It's that the market doesn't care if you aren't housed because you can't provide a profit to them. But it does provide a profit to society if everyone is housed. Um, so an individual like house seller makes no money um, from selling to someone who's like in, near the poverty line. But society makes a huge benefit if people aren't close to, to like being in, in, impoverished, if they aren't at risk of mental health problems, if they aren't at risk of close, social exclusion and so on. Um, so for that one, you basically need, uh, I think the term I used before is regulated markets where you either subsidize markets or tax markets so that they, they overproduce some things relative to what they would or underproduce others. So you do carbon taxes that brings profit in line with social utility or you subsidize housing that brings profit in line with social utility. Those are the basic fundamental theories. It, um, it's, it, uh, if you want more economics terms, it's called internalizing and externality. Um, and I just think socialists have to do a lot more than the current market does. Yeah, uh, going back to uh, an early thing in the, mm -hmm. I guess, block of speaking, uh, I was talking to... Sorry, uh, I apologize for the long ones. It's just a big idea. Oh, no, it's fine. It's just I, I don't know what to call it. Uh, but yeah. I was talking to a, a right-wing uh, friend, and he sent me something from, I believe it was uh, 1899, about why uh, you shouldn't like question your boss or something, or start a union or do socialism. Uh you should just do your work on question, but I, I sent back uh, Mount the Infidel's video on welfare, or yeah, it was welfare, why welfare is good. Uh, go check it out if you haven't. Uh, it's a, an amazing video. But uh, after that, he told me uh, that like, while a safety net is good, uh, that we shouldn't have to like help, help these people who have been stupid, like completely out of poverty. And I had to explain to him that uh, like as a Marxist, I generally believe that in the materialist point of view of the world is that people are a product of their material conditions and that not being good with money is not just, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. Somebody has to teach you to be good at money or you have to learn it through having money for long periods of time, which a lot of people in more impoverished uh, situations don't have the ability to take finance classes or have money for long enough to where they don't see it as like 
because you have to buy food like or else you die if you don't have much but i also explained to him the reason for having a good welfare system that sets a higher uh floor would be that you get a benefit out of it you don't just throw your money at it because crime is going to go down if the poverty rate goes down it's not an effect you directly see because you don't see yourself not getting Mm -hmm. robbed but you're not going to get robbed or you're going to get robbed less if you have a strong floor meaning that people don't have to live to almost subsistence where they have to take things from others if you have a state that cares about its people no, very much. I, I totally agree with that. I recently learned of a concept in criminology um, called left realism, which is the idea that poverty, um, it's fundamental the idea that one, poverty causes crime, and two, crime mostly hurts working class people. So crime bad and poverty bad. Um, and so therefore, uh, the, the basic idea is that over-policing also hurts working people. You need some degree of social programs and, a com- and also policing to keep people safe simultaneously from poverty and from crime and from repression. Um, so left realism, I thought was an interesting idea. Um, totally agree. I, th- I think what a lot of this comes down to is uh, returning to the idea of what we should be focusing on is doing what's best for people and not the profit motive. Because mm-hmm. I find, um, especially with talking to like neoliberals and people like even further right of that, when it comes down to it, all their arguments come down to this is what's maximizing profit, it seems like. And it's interesting because like, I was talking about, uh, I think I was talking to, to Cam about this the other day, is that like a lot of these further like right-wing people aren't super opposed to a lot of the workplace democracy stuff. Because mm-hmm. like, I, because I've been... Well, I think I, that's because it doesn't, it doesn't interfere with the pursuit of profit. It doesn't really interfere with markets or wealth inequality necessarily. Um, like on its own, it's not sufficient, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think it also, I think, but I was going to say more fundamentally, I think it's something that people can imagine mm. uh, happening. It, it, it is like, unlike, uh, I guess, like, unlike uh, highly regulated and nationalized markets, it's something that does sort of exist currently almost, like you can mm-hmm. picture it. And um, and I guess pairing that up with, uh, with a, a speech from Angela Davis I watched the other day, the first step to like making massive change is imagining that the change is possible. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, I guess that's the two main things that I feel like need to happen moving forward is that one, we need to return to the focus and the goal of society is making society better, not maximizing efficiency and profits. And two, uh, trying to imagine these systems so that we can bring people over to them and i think that is my biggest problem with with uh some of the market socialism stuff is imagining how it would work and i guess imagining how it couldn't just turn back if one firm ends up becoming too economically successful when i think um this gets at what the root of what the problem with capitalism is is so uh, there's there's some quotes, um, I can get them from Marx, but I think they're pretty intuitive. Um, the, the reason why capitalism is exploitative, the reason why it's problematic is because people have those different incentives. It's that there is a capitalist class, there is a, a worker class. And so the worker is forced to work. They can't subside if they don't work. You, you'll ultimately die um, unless, of course, you have a sufficiently like nice poverty line and like welfare state and so on. But you will be deprived of material goods if you don't work. Um, 
And then there's another class which subsides off of capital income. And so one of the arguments about a well-functioning market socialist system is that there should be no person who is rich enough to subside off of capital income. Every person would have to be a worker if they were able-bodied, um, basically is how it comes down to it. Um, so if you prevent, it, it doesn't matter if individual cooperative firms are becoming enormous because the people owning those firms aren't becoming like Jeff Bezos because even though they might own property, like they, they might own shares of the stocks or something, their income from those stocks is limited by income taxes. Their um, wealth that they can gain in total is limited by wealth taxes. And so ultimately, and also inheritance taxes. So ultimately it's hard to compound wealth over time, either from one individual or across many generations. And so it's hard to imagine that any individual being able to become wealthy enough to meaningfully exploit another person. Fundamentally, everyone is a worker or everyone is a capitalist, however you want to think about it. Um, that's the, the way I think about it. Um, you be, By compressing classes, you have eliminated yeah, that so, source of exploitation. So you would have to have some sort of centralized government that is imposing wealth taxes so no one gets too much power. Yeah, okay. That See, that makes a lot and of I do sense. Think, I do think that there is an additional strength of unions and cooperatives and that because they're internally democratic, it probably makes it harder to have an extremely highly paid CEO who isn't doing anything very functional for the company. Um, and unions also provide additional bargaining, workers' rage, wages going up and so on. So I do think there are additional constraints other than just big daddy government is taking away the rich people's money. But yeah, the main one, probably taxes. Yeah, okay. And I, I guess also, this was another thing that came up uh, was yesterday is the idea of in a non, uh, if it's non-globalized, the difference between like, could a firm within the labor aristocracy exploit uh, workers from outside the country and how would we control for that if before like globalization? And I guess my answer would be, I think that um, in terms of inter-country or inter-region um, exploitation, unfortunately there are very similar dynamics either in planning or in market systems. Um, in a, in, a, in a planning system, let's say that you're the planner and you do better or the people that like vote for you do better when their lives are materially better off. You have an incentive um, to provide them a better material life. If you can do so by screwing people in other countries over, then theoretically you should do so. Um, you are like encouraged to do so by the incentives of democracy, by the incentives of planning. Um, maybe it could be more limited than in markets. Maybe markets are more inherently leaning towards exploitation. And I think, again, that's the argument for an increased role of planning, either via public aid, um, like foreign aid to other countries or public aid to like given regions um, or to um, like regulated markets. The concept would be that you'd want to impose limitations on how much they can exploit other countries. So even in the United States, we have some measures like you can't use child labor. You can't bribe yeah. people in other countries. Um, so these are obviously very wide labor restrictions, but you can imagine more extreme labor restrictions in a more heavily regulated market society. So I guess I guess my next question would be, well, for, for this stuff to happen, why do we have to move all the way to a market socialist system? And why wouldn't this be possible over maybe a social democratic uh, capitalist system? That's precisely what I think is one of the strengths of market socialism, is that it is an in incremental and reformist approach to socialism. Because I think that we, the, the basic point that I would point to is we have never seen, not once, a successful socialist revolution in a liberal democracy. Um, high, the higher incomes people have seen, the higher education people have seen, higher power the state has become. We've seen an enormous decline of the rate of revolution, the rate of success of revolution. Um, and so it's very hard for me to believe that 
Um, even if you think that the, the great theorists of old were totally right, that Lenin was totally right, that revolution was the way to socialism, maybe it was the way to socialism in Russia in 1900. Today, in the era of really wealthy people, highly centralized states, big, strong militaries that are going to crush you, unfortunately, that path doesn't seem to be open. So I think that we, as leftists, this is the reason why I advocate for reform all the time, I think that the only or most realistic path to leftism goes through reform. So I actually think I would point to that as a strength of uh, market socialism, not as a weakness. I think there was a YouTuber I want, watched once. I'm not sure of their exact ideology, but I believe they had the Cuban flag in their profile picture. Uh, so maybe Marxist-Leninist, but they did describe that like Leninism is like an application of Marxism to 1917 Russia. And then Maoism would be the application of Marxism or whatever text Mao had available in China during the 40s to the 70s. So like applying like the socialism beliefs of your your utopians, mm -hmm. your uh, Marxist, your other guys, Kropotkin maybe, I don't mm -hmm. know. Uh, I don't know what's the basis of like Marxist socialism as a ideology. So, so I guess my next question would, or wait, did you have something to say about that? Oh, I, were you just asking like what text I would point to at Karsten or? I mean, yeah, like what, what text would be good as the basis? Cause you have like anarchism with Kropotkin and the other guys, mm. uh, typical socialism has Marx. And then some people still describe, subscribe to Thomas More and his utopia from the 1500s. Yeah, um, I guess I don't know that I have any particular books which advocate for market socialism as a coherent system, so I can't give you one book. Um, if I were to point to a bunch of books, which I think point in the general direction of what I'm talking about, it would be um, probably one would be uh, The Entrepreneurial State, The Entrepreneurial State by Matsukudo, which was written in 2013. It basically argues how the, the state can act in developing and spurring innovation, um, even in a market context. Um, one would be, what would another good one be? Um, if you want to read one book that's somewhat favorable towards the Soviet Union and one that's not, one would be Farm to Factory by Robert Allen, um, which is the favorable one, Farm to Factory by Allen. And the unfavorable one is called How Not to Network a Nation by Peters, How Not to Network a Nation. Um, and I guess the final one would probably be The Narrow Corridor by Asa Moglu and Robinson, um, which is about how the, basically the, the grand thesis of Asa Moglu and Robinson is that the Democracy um, and good institutions are the fundamental driver of economic growth. Um, and so their argument is that as we've seen democracies grow, we've also seen economic growth grow. Um, and um, that one of their arguments is that relates to that is um, basically it's, the, it's this bargain that the elites did. They gave us democracy. They knew that when they gave us democracy, that would give us more power um, because there's many more of us than there are of them. And so over the long run, that's correct. We've been taking more and more and more of their wealth away. Um, obviously it doesn't look like this because we live in the current neoliberal period and we're looking back to the eighties and the sixties and so on. But in the very long run, we're taking enormously more of the very richest profits than we ever have been in history. Um, and so I think that that's basically correct. And so the continued expansion of democracy and worker rights and so on should lead to the continued taking of power from the rich, that these are gradual processes, not revolutions. Um, yeah, those would be the main ones. Uh, so I guess my, my next question would be, how do you stop uh, gradual reform from getting reversed by capitalists with lots of power? 
Sure. Um, I, the basic answer is that you want to design reforms to be as ratchet-like as possible, uh, meaning they go in one direction. Um, so one of the things that we know about a lot of welfare programs is that they are, um, it's called welfare retrenchment. It is hard to undo a lot of welfare because people are very strongly dependent on that welfare. And this can be both a good and a bad thing. There are very poorly designed welfare programs that people get very strongly attached to, and it's really, really, really hard to get rid of them. Um, so like in the United States, right, oil subsidies, sugar subsidies, farm subsidies, these are enormous voting issues in the United States politics, even though farm subsidies probably aren't on net a good thing. Um, we're overproducing corn, we're overproducing crops for no real benefit. Um, and so like, it's easy to see, I think, welfare retrenchment as being difficult. Welfare is inherently hard to undo. Um, so we've already somewhat got that on our side. But at a structural level, it is often easy to... Um, it's easier to chip away at unions and at other methods of like raising left-wing power. And so um, generally what I've suggested is that um, I think that the focus should be on trying to build large and strong unions. We have seen that social democracies have seen a smaller reduction in unionization than have non-social democracies. And I think that that is in part because they had strong unions, which made them into social democracies. Those social democracies are in turn more resistant to undoing those changes. Whereas countries like the United States and Australia and England, which are um, a more of a market model, have seen a much bigger reductions in unions. So one, strong unions create strong institutions, create strong unions. Um, so there's a sort of cyclic thing. And then two would be try to change those institutions to be as left favorable as possible. One is that the media tends to have a right-wing bias. Um, and I know, I'm sorry for these long speeches, but um, the basic idea is that they have institutions of power. You want to either change or remove those institutions. So you want publicly funded media. You might want to restrict how much money private media can get. You might want to restrict advertisement. Uh, and you want to do a lot of stuff like NPR and PBS, which generally, um, there was actually a really neat study that I read just the other day, I think it was in The Guardian, um, that the more publicly funded news stations there are in a given country, the weaker the far right party in that country is. Um, like it, it's a one to one correlation. Um, so in short, it seems like publicly funded high trust media is another way to make people not go batshit insane when immigrants come into their country. Yeah. Uh, so right now, I recently finished a book that inspired me to write a video essay that I hopefully can eventually put on the channel. I was I was gonna I was gonna record it until I got sick. Um, but the basic premises the basic premise behind the essay is that like in the current era, uh, a lot of socialists are still trying to fight an enemy of the past, which is kind of like industrial capital, which still exists. It, it industry is the it's a major pull of our like output growth and stuff like that. Uh, but it is not like the big boss in town anymore. Like it used to be back in the fifties and sixties. Um, what has replaced that has been like real estate. And I've, I've talked about this for the two last two episodes. I'm sorry, listeners, if this is getting annoying. Um, but the proposal along with the, the book I read, which you can find in episode six, if you listen to all of it listeners and you should have already, um uh just trying to get it like the maximum amount of uh listens here uh but the idea is like you need to start like tenant unions and you need to start stuff like that which is uh supposed to uh be able to combat uh the new power of real estate and since i believe it was i used a study that proved that since 1997 we've almost seen uh rents the median rent has gone up by like three times. Uh, do you think that we need to like a, adjust our response from just trying to build up our labor unions in order to achieve that? This is, so I, I have two takes on this. 
Um, one is the general take. So you can read, and I posted some quotes from Marx in the chat. Um, Marx talks about money capital versus manager capitalist. And so Marx, as he was writing, and Marx was correct about this, um, not correct on everything, but correct on this, um, that we increasingly saw the move from one guy running one factory and he's the big bad boss who's screwing you over. That the, the same person who owned the factory was the manager of the factory. Instead, the long run has been that very, very wealthy people look a lot more like Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, where Jeff Bezos still runs Amazon, but he could leave Amazon, stop running it tomorrow and still be an incredibly wealthy man. Bill Gates did leave Microsoft. He owns less than 1% of his shares. He doesn't run it. He doesn't interact with its daily operations. And he's still an incredibly wealthy man because he has money, not because he is direct managerial control of capital. And so I do agree that you're totally correct that we have seen a shift away from big, bad, like factory managers beating down on the workers to concentrated financial power. This is one of the reasons why I focus on like class compression, meaning not just that the workers take ownership of the means of capital, but they need to physically like redistribute wealth um, from like the very rich to the very poor. And they also need stuff like social wealth funds and other forms that redistribute that financial wealth. Um, so that's so, the one answer. Go ahead. You can interject. So I guess like, my one problem with that is how do you get these policies through when uh, you have two problems? You have a bunch of money to lobby against these ideas. And two, you have like half our citizenry that is very like economically individualist, which I think is like one of the biggest problems that we have. So how do you get these like redistributive policies through with those two walls in the way? If I, if I may interject right before you answer... Um, I also wanted to add like a bunch of these billionaires like the Koch brothers and Bill Gates, which a lot of people don't like be them being put together, but they mm -hmm. do uh, fund like a lot of like educational projects. Uh, the Koch brothers through like propaganda machines of uh, uh, Turning Point USA and they might fund PragerU. I'm not sure if they do or not. Um, I know oil, other oil billionaires do. Yeah, I think that's the Wilkes uh, brothers is for PragerU, like some oil brothers. Yeah, yeah. There's but, a ton of like propaganda that comes out of multiple institutions funded but by Bill Gates. His main thing is charter schools worldwide, which mm -hmm. I I don't know how much of an ideological project that is, but it, it is still against like a more socialist system, which would have at least a yeah. higher percentage of public schools than America does. Well, I. So I basically agree. I mean, so the, the, the answer to Patrick's question, like how do we get these policies through is in part um, the answer that I gave before. You want to reduce those people's power. One of the ways you reduce their power is taking their wealth away. One of the reasons why the wealthy are less powerful in European countries is because they weren't as wealthy to begin with. The United States had a much bigger, I'm sorry, that's not the other way. Like for example, in France, the wealth of the top 10%, I believe went down like 50% um, relative to the other classes, which in the like 1940 to 1970 era, which was like the golden age of social democracy. In the United States, it was 23%, about half that. And so in the United States, they were wealthier. And so now they are more wealthy and they have more power. One of the ways you take it away is just by doing this sort of incremental stuff. The less wealth they have, the more wealth everyone else has, the less relative power they have. Um, the two, the answer comes to messaging and it comes to um, basically what David Shore called um, saliency. So um, one of the things I thought was really neat to come out of the 2020 election in Florida, um, the minimum wage, $15 minimum wage passed, I think it was like 63% or something. Trump won the state by 53%, right? So like 10, 15% gap between those. People didn't vote for Joe Biden, the $15 minimum wage candidate, they voted for Trump. 
um, in Oregon, right? You got like decriminalization of marijuana across the entire United States. We've consistently seen states voting to expand Medicare and Medicaid as they vote Republican. Uh, and the basic answer that David Shore, um, uh, that's David Shore, S-H-O-R, argues is that economic issues are no longer salient. They aren't important to people in the way they vote or the way they identify. Now, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, the reason is because basically on the Republican side, you're bigoted. On the Democratic side, you're not as bigoted. Um, fundamentally, the reason people are voting Republican is they don't like immigrants. They don't like like the, the, the new social movements that we've seen since the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And the people in the Democratic side fundamentally do. The salient issues of today are social issues, not economic ones. So if you want the left to win elections, like they've been winning these referendums, you have to make economic issues salient. So I think that messaging, like Bernie Sanders does, like AOC does, is actually very useful to that. It's trying to normalize certain policies and make them top of the ticket items. Um, what more can you do? Not much. You really need media control to make things more salient to people. People watching Fox News aren't going to care about $15 minimum wage if the only thing they hear is about an immigrant caravan coming across the border. So fundamentally, you need media reform in some way. Well, it, it does matter to the group because Bernie Sanders did get a lot of he did get a lot of uh, mm -hmm. disavowed Trump people or disillusioned Trump people on his side because a lot of them benefit from having a Medicare for all system because it, it is a better system than ACA healthcare by long jumps and leaps. Yeah. Uh, but And I think we've, oh, sorry. Uh, but like a lot of the people in the more moderate and like moderate Republicans that uh, change sides to vote for Joe Biden in the primary and possibly in the general election, uh, they do have, those are your upper middle class people mm -hmm. uh, and your, your upper, upper class, uh, two upper class people that have, uh, a reason to not like Bernie Sanders as uh, economic. So like the social stuff might work on them. They might also hate immigrants, but mm -hmm. they also have a reason to stop socialism too, because it might mean their wealth is taken away a little bit. No, I mean, the big story of why Biden won is he won the suburbs and disproportionately he won well-educated suburbs, which tend to be high income. And the primary reason those people are voting left is because of social issues. And so for both good and bad, um, to some degree, this is useful. Winning wealthy people is useful for a social movement. Again, if wealth is power, having wealthy people on our side is a good thing. And um, this will sound odd, but partisan identities are really, really strong. If you can make people think that they're Democrats and then you can inculcate leftist policies into the Democratic identity, they will begin to adopt those policies. You see the same thing on the Republican side. Trump says he's against free trade. People switch their views on free trade. The Republican party was like 70% in favor of free trade in 2016. Nowadays, they're like 20% in favor of free trade because one guy with a big platform is advocating against it. So there is a utility of bringing people into the Democratic party and then entering into the Democratic party and moving it to the left. Um, even if, you know, I, even if it comes at the cost of all, like, basically, I think that it's good to have rich, um, yuppies, like social left, but economic right people in, because then maybe we can also shift them to economic center or something. Uh, that's the basic take. Well, a, a lot of people believe, uh, and I mainly get this take from like the Chapo area. I'm not sure where mm -hmm. they would be like the populist left in a sense, maybe mm -hmm. not quite, they're not nowhere near as dumb as like Jimmy Dore, <laughs> um, but their take on Lobar. it is- Bill Barr? I said low bar. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, but still. Uh, their take on it was like uh, like Hillary Clinton Democrats, uh, maybe like everybody except for like a Barack Obama, maybe, who ran in the 2008 mm -hmm. election, and Gravel, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. But like before, maybe like three or so years ago, 
what they wanted was like the an a party that represented economically what the conservatives of the 2000s had but without evangelicals is kind of yeah. what they were looking for yeah no that's entirely the david shore argument it's that economics faded as as an issue from like the 70s and 80s and 90s with the rise of the abortion debates then the gay rights debates um and now with like trans rights issues. These are what are salient to a lot of people's minds and immigration, immigration has been a constant um, since like the seventies and eighties. Um, and also race, I never, you can never ignore any conversation without race. Um, so like, those are the salient issues. I totally agree with that analysis. Um, the goal of the left should in part to be make, to make economics more salient. That does mean that you might lose some of those social, those like social, um, left but econ right people. The hope is that the partisan identity is strong enough or their rejection of the social values of the Republican party is strong enough that they continue to vote for the Democrats. There was there was this really neat article. Um, I think I can find it. I think it was from Data for Progress. They published an article showing that a lot of Republicans don't even know what the economic positions of the Republican party are. I wanna say it's something like 60% of Republicans think that the Republican party wants to protect pre-existing conditions. They're literally fighting in court to oppose it at this very moment. They passed a bill to eliminate it. It's something like 30% of them think that the Republican party wants a $15 minimum wage. Like. I, they, they just don't know because they don't read or hear about these issues because they listen to Fox News. Yeah, it's so I, I've I think I've argued this before is I think generally uh, the American people are more economically left than we give them credit for. But the biggest problem I see with the Democrat Party is especially from right when you're just there seen as the oligarchs and the obnoxious SJWs. So uh, and, and I think also alongside pushing more left-wing economic policies as the forefront of like uh, your races, I think you could also pull people over on actual like leftist uh, views of social issues. Cause I find that a lot of times when people have a problem with um, social justice warriors is it's, is it's, it's like the liberalized version of, a lot of these left-wing ideas and they'll get mad at like stuff like intersectionality because liberal intersectionality leaves out class when that is one of the most important parts of intersectionality. Uh, no, I, I, I strongly agree. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say <laughs> beforehand uh, that like all links that are needed, I'll put them in the description mm -hmm. below. Uh, listener, please go check that out. Um, of course, listener, do do agree with my worldview and click all my links. <laughs> do as I say. Um, um, no, I, I totally agree with that. I, I mentioned before this idea of leftism, which is a term in criminology, um, and it, it arose in part because people on the left were really frustrated with how the right had dominated um, discussions about crime with discussions about race, IQ, and um, like personal choice, basically. Um, like the, the, the working class were just too lazy, too inherently criminal sort of stuff. Um, and so the left realist view was basically supposed to be that social exclusion and poverty were the causes of crime. And so therefore we need to like show that our policies can solve that. So we too can dominate the conversation. And so I think you see that even today um, when Biden has to signal that he's strong in law and order. He's like, I love our police. I support our police. Even if those aren't actually good solutions to crime, the way that the conversation about crime works is you either love police or you hate them. There is no like police alternative um, akin to like defund the police. There's a reason it was so toxic and it's because we weren't engaged in that conversation. So I do agree that um, the left does need to make conversations like that and address these things and not just ignore them. So very much agree. Uh, well, with the do defund the police, the alternative is uh, economic solutions. Mm -hmm. I know, but I'm, I'm saying is that yeah. that conversation hadn't been there, so people weren't used to it at all. And so all they heard is, I hate police, I want crime to rise, I want anarchy. 
So that conversation yeah. hasn't been there. So they got le- they got left adrift. Uh, do you know the book uh, The Bell Curve that was released mm-hmm. in the early 90s? Uh, and do you know the author's uh, Charles Murf- Murray's like Twitter account? I have not looked at his Twitter account, but I'm sure it's highness, uh, just disgusting. So a big thing, a lot of the people that have criticized that book for how like absolutely dumb it is um, have witnessed from him is that I don't think the book itself proved that like its findings were real yet. They said that it would be proven in like five to ten years. Yep. And on Twitter recently, he like tweeted out five more years before <laughs> like race and IQ would be like finally my results. Uh, mm-hmm. No, I mean thirty it's, years later. I don't know how many times you guys have talked with fascists, but I used to talk with none. like actual fascists um, on the politics Discord, other like pol- like debating discords. And whenever they want to argue about immigration or race realism, they will always say something, uh, a line like, just look outside, just engage with the reality, just use your eyes. Um, the sort of idea that it's just such an objective fact that you would have to be an idiot to deny it. And you'll say, well, the science doesn't support this, right? Like there's no evidence that immigration reduces wages. There's no evidence that immigration reduces employment. And they'll say, well, it's just obvious, just look outside. And so I do agree that there's something about this, about these topics that people are just fundamentally unable to think like abstractly about. It's like a gut instinct reaction. They know they're right. The data, is, even if it's not there, they know it will be eventually because they have the faith. Um, well, a lot so of these people could, are wrong because like these like ugly little white boys have never like been outside their own like racial group, except for like the people they see in their halls at their public school. If they even go to a public school, that is. But uh, like... I can't There's actually for- literally an article about that. I'm pretty sure if you put it into Google Scholar, it's um, white kids, black schools or something. There's literally an article about the effect of going to a black school or like a, a multiracial school on kids. And in short, it makes them more liberal, as you'd expect. It benefits oh, yeah. everybody. No, but uh, I was saying, I'll let Patrick go after this, but I was saying um, that I, at the early part of this year, February, March, I or no, uh, January and February, I canvassed for Bernie Sanders here in South Carolina. And I felt like, I was like less anxious in the poor neighborhoods, which is not mm-hmm. a response like a middle class person normally has, because like I was selling a socialist pretty much. So like the poor minority communities were like a great place to do it because it's like this is a candidate that speaks for, or is helpful towards these people if his policies was passed, in my opinion at least. But I don't I don't know how true that is. Well, I'm, like a I'm lot of these people that. are like super nice, like. They just like these people are so disconnected from like poverty and minorities that they just think these people are just like gangbangers like a hundred percent of the time. Well or at all. The the best predictor the best predictors of which way someone votes in like 2016, 2020 is um, education and how rural their their location is. Um, Basically, if you're high educated, you tend to vote Democrat. Um, and if you're in a rural place, you tend to vote Republican. And that those divides have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger over time. Um, so literally, you are literally correct that a lot of conservative people genuinely do live in very isolated rural locations. Um, you can find surveys. Lots of liberals will say they don't have friends with conservatives and conservatives say they don't have friends with liberals. Also, too, people like who are more conservative have fewer friends who are of other races. And part of that is just because they live in places where there are basically only white people. Um, Like Idaho is like 98% white. You've got to find like the two black people to be friends with. Um, So yeah, no, this is absolutely a true dynamic. There's uh, the theory to couch this in is called um, contact theory, contact theory or contact hypothesis that more contact between groups tends to lead to those groups hating each other less, um, which is something we've seen for gay people, for trans people and for racial and um, 
uh, ethnic minorities. And I don't even think you necessarily need to personally meet them. Like, I think what moved, what started my move towards the left is in college, it wasn't necessarily meeting people that were different from me. It was that all of my English classes focused on lives that were very different from mine. So I think like my, my uh, second English class was reading like Trevor Noah's book. We read this uh, book about a black doctor. And then in my third English class, it was all stories from women who don't live in America. And I think that was a fundamental part of me moving left was uh, experiencing stories from people that are extremely different from mine. And that's also one of the reasons why. So I'm a musician and I've been Mm -hmm. trying to find a way of almost trying to tell these stories of people that we don't meet, but it's kind of hard because they're not my stories to tell Mm -hmm. almost Um, because I do want to try to build uh, empathy for people that we don't ever meet. There's um, speaking to that, um, what you're talking about, like reading stories that come from a perspective different than your own. My mom is an English teacher. She explicitly talks about this herself. Um, it's like part of good pedagogy, uh, meaning teaching, um, to to provide people stories and experiences that are different from their own. We also have just empirical research. One of the reasons why people in cities are more socially accepting is they are forced to interact with more people who are different than them, unlike people in the suburbs and unlike people in rural areas. You are forced just by the very fact that you live in a dense area, you walk by many people, you've got to go to the deli shop and there's like 15 different ethnicities there. You are forced to accept different kinds of people. And so we think that part of the reason that like people in cities are more accepting of gays is in part because of education, part because of partisan affiliation, part of like all these other things, but also just in part due to the very structure, the very urban structure of where they live. Uh, which I thought was very interesting. So thumbs up. I think also um, going back to like, you were talking about talking to fascists and like even people that don't uh, identify as fascist and don't identify as racist, there is still like, we need a once and for all way to shut down the culture argument Mm -hmm. because the only way I can think to shut it down is... um, and not to shut it down in a debate, I mean to actually cancel it out in that person's mm-hmm. head. Um, the only way I can think is to give a like long historical analysis of how though that um, reasoning has been used. Cause you know, that was a big reasoning for not freeing the slaves cause their culture wouldn't mix with the free world. You know, we don't want Muslims coming over here cause their culture doesn't mix with our culture. You know, black people are poor cause there's something about their culture. But and, and, and even if you like you ask these people, it's like what part of their culture they won't know. But I don't know a way that they'll leave the conversation realizing mm-hmm. that culture is just a replacement for race. I so I don't have the be all end all answer for this. If I had to tell you who to talk to, it would be um, what's their name? Rose Wrist. Uh, I can type their name. Um, who recently did a debate with alternative hypothesis about race and IQ. And so I'm, I'm certain that they'll have some studies which are very useful at like explaining like a concept about race or a concept about IQ uh, and possibly also interacting with culture um, to explain that to them. Um, I do know that one problem, like one reason why I, 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 I'm almost anti-reading theory at this point, and I, I promise it's relevant. Um, the basic problem is that m- most old leftist books are really, really dense and really, really hard to read. And it's not just leftist, it's all old books, but um, 
that is a really bad introduction to leftism and a lot of people just won't follow through and actually do it. So one of the reasons I don't like doing the long historical approach is I think that it just takes too long. Um, and I don't necessarily think it's the most persuasive. Um, if you wanted to look at some related approaches, um, so, so like some of the research I've read about persuasion indicates that uh, like the way that we form beliefs is not that you have like, it's not like your beliefs are this nice logical process where you start with like, ah, yes, here's my beliefs about race and IQ. And here's my beliefs about how that interacts with crime. And here's my beliefs about therefore the disparity between whites and blacks in, in crime or something. Um, instead, beliefs are like this messy cluster. Um, and I'm sorry that my camera got all fuzzy. I'll try and fix it. Um, uh, basically, it's like this messy cluster of beliefs that all link into each other. And so what ultimately the best you can hope to do is put someone in an environment where you chip away at one belief, you chip away at one belief, you chip away at one belief, and you, you make it into another messy cluster of like the anti-racist beliefs. Um, and so unfortunately, there's no simple way in any conversation about any belief just to take someone's belief out, unfortunately. Unfortunately, it is always a slow conversation. The only yeah. way to de-radicalize fascists is be friends with them. <laughs> unfortunately, literally, yeah. yes. Um, one of the, if I was going to point you to one thing to, to read about, it would be deep canvassing. Deep canvassing is this idea that um, generally, the, the example they did is with trans rights, they would have a trans person or trans ally go and talk for, I think, half an hour to an hour with someone about trans issues. And it changed those people's beliefs in favor of trans rights on the order of like eight to 10 10 points. Um, and so being friends with random people does work, but unfortunately you can't just do it. And it's really yeah. hard to do it online in like a random debate in a one-off interaction. Um, it's yeah, that's the basic take. You can't. Yeah. I find with trans, uh, trans rights in particular, I don't think most people are against trans rights. They just don't get it. Like it, it's literally, it's all every like anti-trans argument comes down to like fear or misunderstanding or just like pure disgust. You know, there's, I don't know. And also, um, I think another thing with the race and like uh, upholding these racist ideas is that in uh, the society today, like one of the worst things you can be called is racist almost. Mm -hmm. And so people, because of that, almost won't recognize racism within their themselves. And so like... So, so like if you say maybe maybe you're someone that like code switches around black people and it's like been subconscious mm -hmm. for years a lot of people i found will refuse to recognize that because they don't want to perceive themselves as racist but you can't fix the racist action without first recognizing it one of the things i read that was very interesting to my theory of persuasion is um when people feel like they are personally being attacked for something they enter into a defensive mode and they are much harder to persuade. So the long and short of that is you should almost never mention anything about a person. You should almost explicitly try to make it about general statements so they don't feel yeah. offensive about it. Explicitly say stuff like, I don't think you're racist, even if they are. I don't think you're racist, but I just think that this belief that you hold uh, might, might not be true or something along those lines. Um, so unfortunately, it, it literally the best ways it seems to change people's minds are to agree with their bigoted statements, um, be very friendly to them, and then provide an alternative that's like one or two steps to the left on one of their beliefs and try and shift them slowly, slowly, slowly. Um, so I, I'm basically just trying to agree that people get very defensive if you call them any like anything like racist or you imply their beliefs are racist. So don't do that. I was thinking the other day about it, and a lot of the way conservatives react to a lot of policies is purely based on how it will affect them. Like a conservative would have uh, believe in Medicare for all if it would benefit them in a sense. But like a lot of the policies like increased policing uh, and 
more socialism are not or two different things that affect them differently because mm-hmm. more socialism is in the general sense can like guess a lot of conservatives are richer too so they don't want mm-hmm. that and uh some are just so into like capitalist propaganda that they don't know it'll benefit them and think it's going to be some like authoritarian evil uh, whereas like more policing doesn't affect like the white conservative out in rural america because it doesn't mean another police car is going to be in their street it just means that um, martin luther king boulevard is going to have a swat te- another swat team on their street constantly yep. going back and forth so like a lot of these issues uh like they get to see like the lower crime benefit uh maybe possibly of having these extra police but they also don't have to get the punishment of having to be like constantly criminalized like people in inner city do yeah no i I very much agree um i think this isn't just a problem with conservatives you know all all humans think to some degree it's you know everyone is is self-centered um with how they think about how other people think and how they think the world works um but i will agree that um a lot of people tend to frame things in terms of personal benefit. Um, so I, I, I do agree with that. Um, and I think that that is one of the benefits of stuff like contact theory is making people understand that, hey, people do benefit from these policies. Your friend Paul would benefit from these policies. Um, one of the things we also know is that um, one of the reasons the US has a weaker welfare state than a lot of European countries is, um, you know, the old Ben Shapiro line and like right wing talking point that it's all about racial homogeneity, um, that like the Sw- Sweden is racially I, homogenous. I never understood that. I don't I don't get how that logic follows. But. I, I think it's basically just because they're racist. I think they're just saying it in a different way. Um, but the, the uh, another but, time, they'll also say that uh, Sweden's being invaded by uh, Muslims that well, yeah, yeah no, like it, we can't have healthcare because there's too many black people. Like, <laughs> well, that's the implication of the argument. And so, one of the things that's interesting is there was this really neat paper in Enber, which argues that one of the reasons why um, America has a weaker welfare state than like a lot of European countries is actually due to racial homogeneity. And it's not because um, black people destroyed the welfare state or something. Um, it's basically because of racism. It's that in America, you want to do welfare. Guess who most of that welfare is going to benefit? poor people, and who are most poor people, black people, Hispanic people, people of other races, other ethnicities. And so due to racial animosity, people will oppose welfare. Um, I think that one of the huge benefits of getting people just to know people of like other ethnicities, other backgrounds, rich and poor, and like different ethnicities, is just that it normalizes welfare as not being this big, scary thing that only blacks get. It's something that poor white people get. It's something that your black friend gets as well. So so I guess the argument would be is those people over in Norway are more pro-living uh, communally because they are somehow unified through race and culture? Is that what you're it's, li- it's literally that in America, you ask us someone, hey, do you want, want to give welfare to poor people? In America, the, mind that, in, the image in your mind of a poor person is a black person. And so if you're racist, you're gonna oppose it. If you're in Norway and you think of giving to the poor, your image of a poor person is still a white person. So it doesn't matter if you're racist, you'd still support it. Um, and so one of the things that we're seeing, and I think it's a very interesting change in that dynamic, is as immigrants are joining those countries, we're seeing all the racists start to vote for the right-wing parties. Um, so now that image is changing. So very interesting that, trend. That reminded me of another thing is, is uh, how many ideas we hold are so heavily racialized, but people do not want to admit to how racialized they are like ronald reagan's welfare queen is mm-hmm. a black person you know mm-hmm. when when trump talks about the uh low-income housings coming into the suburbs that's the black people invading the white areas mm-hmm. 
but there is always that plausible and deniability of it. But um, I guess like uh, but I guess also with uh pushing like helping the poor in America, I do think I don't know I maybe we're not as individualistic and greedy as like uh, I perceive us to be. But I do find that like ever since the nineteen eighties the the like fundamental idea is very much economic individualism. You are where you are because you did the things you did. And I think like you could much easily move people much easily, more easily move people left. If you, if we start attacking that fundamental idea of economic individualism and pointing out that it's not working for us and that we are better as a society when we work together. No, I mean, um, I think, Cameron um, brought up before that a lot of people think that they will only support things if it personally benefits them. And so I think that people thinking in this individualistic mindset where they ignore the effects that like a healthy community can have on your personal life and the effects that it has on the overall economy, um, I do think is very harmful. It is useful to shift people's mindset to a more holistic thinking. Yeah, totally. Also, it's also not, we've talked about this, I think in the podcast before, is not letting right-wingers like narrate what our fucking uh slogans mean because mm-hmm. i found like uh like people talk about how shitty of a slogan defund the police is i don't think it's fucking shitty at all it's only shitty is because uh like liberals abandon it instantly and let right-wingers tell the voters what it meant yeah a um, lot of the th- uh, the thing i believe about ben shapiro is ben shapiro is a shit debater but <laughs> ben shapiro True. is amazing at controlling what a debate is about and that's the only reason he ever fucking wins yeah that it's, debating it's all like about controlling people nerves. who are totally unprepared yeah no i agree yeah it's all I about agree. it's all about controlling uh the narrative and i think like the liberal establishment always lets the right wingers control the narrative no i agree um I, I will say, so I agree that if Democrats had fully backed defund the police, I think it would have gotten a very different response. However, I do think that there is some credence to the idea that different messages just have different innate like receptivenesses. And so it's very possible that an alternate message would have done better than defund the police. Some of the most interesting polls I've seen, for example, I think in um, in Seattle, it's like 30% of people said they support defund the police, but 70% said they support like shifting funding from the police to social programs. And so this suggests, um, to me, this sort of thing suggests that there could have been an alternate message which um, was, le- was less easily spun. Um, so I, I am agreeing, like on the one hand, that Democrat leadership can change um, the, the, the messaging, but also two, um, sorry, one, they could have backed the messaging, that would have helped. And two, the message also does matter. I don't think that we can just ignore that it might yeah. have had a bad term. And, and with, with the messaging thing, I, f- I find it frustrating that I think a lot of like more neoliberal people are abandoning the idea of sloganeering and like activism and shit because I don't know it's really fucking weird about like Joe Biden talking to uh like this activist talking about how sloganeering is bad and it ruined his campaign and then also simultaneously saying that he's returning the soul of America which is sloganeering to an extent I think the difference is that his sloganeering is the hyper vague like yes we can hope and change sort of stuff which means very very little um yeah it can't get co-opted yeah, because what what are you going to co-opt it to? Um, the Pete Buttigieg speech. Well, but you can yeah. co-opt it. I mean, because uh, Make America Great Again, like which is essentially returning the soul of America in a sense, mm-hmm. was uh, it wasn't heavily pushed as this idea, but there were people on the left criticizing it, saying like, what 
America are we returning to? Is this so? What it can be controlled, even those more great ideas. It just it's because it doesn't propose a specific policy that it it has less of an issue of being like spun as meaning something that it's not. And so one of the reasons I really didn't like defund the police is it offered a negative vision. We don't want police funding, but didn't offer a positive vision. I really like, um, and you, th- this is why I think some of these policies do so well in the polls. Stuff like Green New Deal, Medicare for All. They name a specific policy, which is a positive vision of what the future should look like, and they popularize that. So it encourages people to think about what they want to change and like what they want to see in the world rather than just saying, hey, I don't like this thing. Um, so were it something like uh, like reinvest in our communities as a slogan, I, which oh, yeah, I, agree, I will agree is more of a, yeah, fun, like something like that. I think that that would have done, been a much more positive message. It is much harder to spin like funding social programs as saying that you want anarchy and you want crime everywhere and so on um, than the, the, the message that did actually get accentuated. Um, well, yeah. I, uh, oh, sorry. I, I was gonna just change the subject. So you go ahead. Sure. I was gonna say maybe maybe like a fun p- people not police thing would have been better. I do think that it's still less catchy than like just straight defund the police. I don't know. The last yeah. thing I was gonna say, um, and this will be short, is um, I really like the book called um, oh, what the fuck is it named? It's by Hirsch. Hold on, let me get the title. Um, which argues that local organizing is really, really important. Um, And one of the things that they argue is um, those sort of personal connections are really, really important to organizing. And so I think that um, one of the things that also they found is um, some of the local organizers would specifically say like, hey, you should vote for or against this referendum. I think that having the- Yeah, it's like the union stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's having a positive vision of telling people what to do that is also very, very useful in organizing these local communities. Yeah, because I um, think people need leaders in a sense, you know, because not everyone yeah. can know everything. Well, one of the things I've been really happy to see is AOC and actually Beto O'Rourke, an odd pair, um, both pushing for increased grassroots organizing, organizing and what's called year-round organizing. So most get out the vote stuff is like four days before. It's like right now in Georgia um, where they're just canvassing people. They're telling, hey, you should go vote. And it increases the vote that you get by like three to 5% or something. The deep canvassing stuff, the like year round canvassing stuff can change like, uh, you know, 10, 20% of the people's votes and it can change it permanently. Um, And so I've been really happy to see a return of that um, to organizational strategies. And the last thing I want to say on this subject is I really just want to make sure we don't abandon sloganeering because I feel like sloganeering was like one of the biggest parts of like the Trump campaign and the reason they won. They had, they had a million fucking like you go on any liberals TikTok and all the comments are just fucking shitty Trump slogans and shit like that. I think it gives people an easy talking point to somebody. Yeah. yeah. And that might be yeah. useful. As and, propaganda. and yes, that's another thing. It's you got to funnel out talking points to people, which I don't think any leftist does well yet. Like the same way that Prager you or Ben Shapiro does. It's these shitty like dinner table talking points. It's a good idea. All right. We'll what, write what, that one down. What were you talking about, Cam? Sorry, Cam. Uh, I was just going to finish off with the reading series. Yeah. I was going to, uh, you talked or you quote tweeted this, but didn't read it uh, as we discussed beforehand. Socialism to the left. Uh, but. Uh, the headline here is uh, the Daily Wire ma- uh, makes first foray in the film and TV with school shooting movie, run, hide, fight, right wing site developing two TV series. Uh, so stop me, <laughs> stop me whenever you guys want to make a comment. Um, but- what, what the fuck is a right wing TV series going to do? It's going to be about, dude, it's going to be some shit about like 
uh like fascist coming to like control your speech and shit like that it's gonna be really fucking lame but so I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but uh, it says conservative news website, the daily wire has made its first movie acquisition with high high school shooting thriller run, hide fight. The first of multiple projects on a new film and TV slate daily wire has picked up North American rights to the Venice title about a 17 year old girl who must fight for her life and those of her schoolmates against a group of live streaming terrorists Isabel May, Thomas Jane, and Destiny's gonna finish off the job. Okay, that kid that was like DDoSing, he's coming back for revenge. Radhaw Mitchell starred in the film. Uh, so there's a trailer out now if you want to go see it. I will link it in the like the thing below. Um, the film will premiere during a Daily Wire backstage event hosted by co-founder Ben Shapiro and co-CEO Jimmy Boring on January 14th. So go please check that out and tell us how it is uh everybody wait when is it premiering the 14th should we do like a live stream for it or something Dude, yeah let's watch that? it it's gonna be so it's shit. thursday want... god someone had this whole i think it might have been big joel has this whole series on like christian videos like god's not dead and they're oh, just yeah. so bad they're so incredibly like club fisted like beating do you, you over the head be... i actually really like big joel because he doesn't focus on like debating just like how weird their arguments are and like how uncomfortable a lot of the shit they say is he's not even like this is wrong he's just like this is a really weird work of art <laughs> like his fucking uh his video about ben shapiro's like imagine uh ben Shapiro, like getting mad about imagine in that mm-hmm. clip he plays and he's just like he's not pointing out why it's wrong because it's obviously wrong but it's so uncomfortable to watch that video no i think it's very funny uh so I'm sorry keep Carson. going uh run hide fight is ultimately a movie about courage in the face of evil uh said boring uh i hope i'm pronouncing his name right because that, that's a weird name uh, this is a gut-wrenching film that does not offer easy talking points, which is why liberal Hollywood executives have refused to distribute it, he claimed. I, I bet that's why. It's definitely not a horribly I'm virtually script. certain that what happens is, like, some guy with a gun saves the entire school, and it's just a really bad movie. <laughs> yeah, literally, like, all of these conservative types, like Ben Shapiro, Steven Crowder, and more, are either failed comedians or failed actors or failed scriptwriters and some... It's one of them. They're all failed artists like Hitler Dude, was. Wait, the gun thing reminds me. It's going to be like uh, that couple that pointed their guns at protesters oh, and they were man. saving the day. And then the evil Antifa media came down to ruin their lives and send them off to like Antifa jail. I guarantee it's going to be, they're going to cover this exactly the same way they covered that like smug kid that like the, that, that talked with like the Native American activist or whatever. Oh yeah. Um, God, I hate, I hate that kid. <laughs> I don't uh, even I, I don't remember any of the details of it. I just know that I hated his smug face, okay? <laughs> the Daily Wire policies of not publishing the name of mass shooters made it an ideal partner. If this film has a political viewpoint, it's that we should not make terrorists famous. It's the heroes who names whose names we should remember. <laughs> oh Dude, God. The, what the, did the I, Sorry, go ahead. I, I've been thinking about this lately. I feel like the the word terrorism almost has no fucking meaning with the way it's implemented. I've actually, there was a really neat study which showed that until, um, you remember, I think the 2017 um, Charleston, what is it? The shooting. Dylan of the Roof mosque. shooting? 
was Dylan Roof in New Zealand or whatever? It was like no, a, no, Dylan, Dylan, Dylan Roof was, was Charleston, Charleston, the Black Church. Are oh, you talking about the mosque thinking? in New Zealand where yeah, he that, was like for subscribed to PewDiePie or whatever? That one? Yeah, no, that, that one. That was the first. So there was this really neat study that before then, white nationalist extremists were like one in ten chance to get called a terrorist, whereas Muslims were like two thirds. And after that, there was actually an enormous change in media coverage. Um, and since then, it's been like two thirds of white nationalist extremists have actually been called terrorists. Thank which God. I've been very That's, pleased. About. It's good, but it, it shouldn't. Have taken 50 people to die to do that also but like <laughs> preferably not the the definition of terrorism is like it's just like what violence uh for political aims so it's super vague i mean i guess it's somewhat specific because it talks about especially against like civilians but like that that's why i was saying like the the definition of terrorism is so vague that anything could be terrorism like i don't think the black panthers were terrorists but technically they were doing terrorism yeah. by following around cops the, the term is super vague i was just trying to comment on how despite its vagueness it is very yeah, commonly yeah. used for like yeah it's 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 often used for what we consider the other and so it was very interesting that for a long time media coverage did not consider white nationalists the other yeah and that's and that's why i think it's it is so meaningless is because of how we use it like the fact that we don't consider like blackwater terrorists you know mm -hmm. the fact that we consider fucking the black panthers following around cops as terrorists it's 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 this really weird fucking word yeah Nash nashville definitely proved that because i saw people on twitter trying to say that like he got everybody off the street he was mentally ill and just trying to do something about it and i'm like what the fuck because like him blowing up the at tnt building or the part he did blow up caused like outages in 911 services for hundreds of miles like he definitely like somebody died hundreds of miles away, probably because of his Almost action. Certainly, yeah. Also, uh, oh fuck, what I was about to say. Here, someone, someone liberal media got to him. Yeah, the um, like a lot of the coverage comes down to like your skin color, and like we honestly have to look at it that way. Yeah. Well, I will say that the one positive thing about the Democrats being left on the social issues, uh, which has led to this whole economic saliency thing, uh, which which has led to some degree, like part of the reason for why the left has lost in Europe and the United States for a long time is because of the decline of economic saliency. So that is like a cost. One of the nice benefits of it is that we have seen, um, and if you want an article about this, it's one in Vox called um, The Great Awakening, which is about the, the very quick leftward shift of white liberals, which, I, which in, by the definition of the article includes us, um, in America on racial issues. And so it's been very good to see people shifting left on race issues, um, in part because this ho means hope for the future where we won't need to talk about welfare in racialized terms, um, where, or if we do talk about it in racialized terms, it will be in a positive context. So the example they cite in the article, for example, is that Kamala Harris called her objectively race neutral policies. She called them, um, uh, what's the term? Reparations. She called her policy to like give poor people money reparations. No, that's not what the word means, but she's doing it in part because America's liberals have shifted so far left on race that she can talk about it like that. You couldn't have done that 10 years ago. So I think this is a really good thing in the long term. Oh, and the last thing I was going to say, one last thing. Um, there was a Pew poll on Generation Z Republicans. And over the years, we've seen Republicans increasingly, increasingly, increasingly acknowledge that racial issues are due to systemic injustices. Again, this is the sort of thing that I really like in terms of hopium or whatever, because my hope <laughs> is that by, you know, like 2040 or whatever, the Republicans are genuinely like a liberal libertarian party they're no longer the racist party because all of their kids are now like l not into like weird race memes uh, which empirically they aren't um well, and instead, instead they're just into hating on poor people not hating on poor black people well let's hope that uh 
That doesn't exist. Yeah, they become the Liberal Party. We need to start pulling the Republican Party left. No, literally, they would become the Liberal Party, and there's like a 30% who want to be some national party. Yeah. I was going to say, on the the line of terrorism and like uh, shootings done by white people, I do think this is one thing that I think conservatives are right on. I do not think like mass shootings are a access to gun issue. I do think it is a mental health issue. The problem is conservatives do not propose any answer to the mental health problems. I think if we expanded access to mental health care and destigmatize it, it would do a lot more for like cutting down on shootings than just banning guns. Cause I am a very like pro gun person. I will say, so I won't defend, um, I, I'm like a gun controller, I suppose. So I won't get too deep into that um, on this podcast since probably we're nearing, we're, we're, we don't yeah, we're really nearing, into... we're at about like an hour 15 right now. Yeah. We got another yeah. 15 minutes before people look at this video and be like, nah. <laughs> so I won't get too deep into it, but in short, there is some evidence that, um, more strict gun control does lead to less um, like mass shooting in a given area. But as I would basically agree with you, the effect is not that large. And the, the biggest effect, um, th- this will sound counterintuitive, but the biggest reason people get into terrorism is loneliness. Um, people join terrorist groups to find friend groups and a sense of meaning in the world. In America, we have an epidemic of loneliness. We have an epidemic of mental health issues. We have, Yeah, that was uh, Elliot Rogers' whole thing. Women wouldn't fuck him, so he ran people over with his car, right? I no, that was um, no, no. He, I'm pretty sure he just shot people. Oh, did um, he? Yeah, he did. Sh- he shot people in in couples, though, right? I, I think so. Um, yeah, but I, I don't, I don't keep up to date with my Elliot Roger lore, so I'm not. <laughs> um, the, Hope you the, don't. The, you just <laughs> talked about like lonely people getting becoming terrorists, and that was like the first guy I thought of. No, like it's it, it's a general trend that people, especially people with mental illness who need social support networks, just don't have them. And so, one of the really interesting arguments that Hirsch makes in this is the book name that I couldn't remember: "Politics is for Power." Politics is for Power by Hirsch. Um, he argues that we've seen this huge decline of communities. We people are are increasingly no longer religious; they don't go to church. Unions have collapsed. Local party organizations have collapsed. So there are just increasingly no local organizations for a lot of communities. And so as a result, people who are lonely turn to like far right groups, provide them a sense of meaningless, possibly also far left groups in the future. We might see some, some more far left terrorism and um, why they do stuff like mass extremism. Yeah, I think like- uh, I'm, I'm not endorsing far left extremism. <laughs> I, I'm saying I, I, people- I, <laughs> I, was, I cheered for a moment because you were like, more people go to the left. And I was like, yes, no and far farms. left terrorism. And I was like, no. <laughs> I'm just um, saying it because we we are seeing a lot of Americans move to the left. And so I'm sure that eventually you will see far left violence. It, far left violence yeah. hasn't existed for like 20 years. I'm sure it's going to happen eventually. Yeah, so like, yeah. What I was saying earlier, we do need to be more focused on uh, working communally. And I do think a big part of that is uh, being finding ways to build community that isn't circled around the church. Because I find like, especially like in the South, that is the only sense of community that you can just jump into is church. Yep. And I think also like, like maybe, maybe like more publicly funded, like intramural sports would be a good thing. Yeah. Because um, no, wasn't that part all... of like the USSR's culture is like people found community through like intramural sports or something like that? No, I mean, it's, it's, it's urban design and um and like a lot of funding of social groups that were very uh, useful for that sort of stuff. No, totally. Um, it's also like bringing back the um, uh, focus on like leisure and shit and not being mm-hmm. focused on work. Cause like, you can't like go meet people at a coffee shop if everyone's going there to do like paperwork for their job. <laughs> and fundamentally what that really needs is um, 
people just need better workspaces that are outside of their home that aren't Starbucks, I suppose. But that's a whole yeah. separate issue. So yeah. um, flash no, off the reading series. I have like one more paragraph, and mm-hmm. then I have a comment I found that I thought was pretty funny. Uh, All right, so let's hear it. continued. Uh-huh. Uh, we spent years carefully developing this movie in consultation with law enforcement veterans and shooting victims to immerse people into a realistic portrayal of what it's like to experience one of these tragedies. Yes, Daily Wire, known ex- known exactly for not slandering shooting victims, especially from Parkland. Yeah. They they probably talked to that one conservative guy at Parkland. And that Wait, was- yeah, wait a sec. Wait a sec. So it's it's a movie about a shooting that happens? In it's a girl has to escape, I believe. It's, it's about a high school shooting. That is the subject of the movie. And the hero is the guy with the gun. I don't Wait, know. is that really it? That is literally the plot of the movie. We could, uh, me and Pat could do an episode. We'll have, we'll have to after we watch this. it. We have oh, to watch this. Fuck. Um, but the, the comment I found uh, was from like 10 o'clock today. It says... If this was a movie depicting a teenage girl fighting her way through a conservative gun owners to get to an abortion clinic, it would be seen as edgy and avant-garde. Good to see Daily Wire leading wait, the way into wait. the counterculture. But that is a movie, though. Is is like these teens' uh, adventure to get an abortion? That was like a movie that is coming out it or really? came out very recently. That's yes. what they're referring to. Huh. They they like had to escape Texas to go to another state to like get this girl an abortion. Or wait something. wait, I'm pretty sure that's the plot of um The Handmaid's Tale actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, before we go, uh, mm-hmm. even though we're fairly small, uh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. You want to plug anything? Uh, sure. If you live in Georgia, or if left-leaning friends of yours live in Georgia, remind them that they can vote tomorrow, January fifth, to possibly uh, elect. This will come out on the fifth. So God damn it! Yeah, it, 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 it will tomorrow. come, out, come at out in the morning. It comes okay, out at well, eight a.m. Lines folks, are open got, for eleven hours, guys. You've got um, you've got like eleven hours to vote in Georgia, okay, and possibly preserve a Democratic Senate, which might yield some of the most positive climate economic policy that we've seen in a decade. You can force um, Joe Biden to do stuff. He doesn't. He doesn't want to have to do anything. Make him do stuff. All I'm going to note is last time the minimum wage was raised was the last time the Democrats had control of the Senate. Think about your paycheck, folks. Yeah. Um, and all of socialism done left, like major links will be in the description below. If you, for some reason, have not already seen his YouTube channel, but somehow made it your way to ours. Uh, thank okay, you for listening. Simp- have a great day. <laughs> or we'll be back in like uh, two to three weeks, hopefully. 